0: Well, you uh, you pretty much just preached my sermon for me uh, with with that song. I mean, that was so so beautiful. Number one, but just the, the the voices the voices in this room coming together as one to sing praise to God. That is that's what we're talking about uh, this morning. Last week we began a, a series entitled "The Journey Walking Together," and you'll recall if you were here last week that, that what we said is that uh, that that over the next several weeks we'll be spending some time looking at eight core commitments that our shepherds have identified and they're asking us to commit to these principles. These are, are deeply biblical principles, but they are, are envisioned here as kind of common steps in a journey that we're making together. With Jesus out in front, with Jesus leading the way, can we commit together together? To walking in his footsteps and so last week we began this series with a, a a very vertical component there talking about our quiet time with God and and I'd like to ask you here now a week later how how was this past week for you were you able to find some time to to just get away and to spend with the Lord as we noted last week Jesus went to those solitary lonely places So that he could connect with his God and in a world filled with noise how much more so do you and I need to do the same thing so so how was this week for you I hope it was a good one I hope we can commit ourselves again to finding that time for for quiet space with the Lord and then now as as we make our way through this series the second of these steps that that we're taking now focuses on a on a more horizontal component of our walk together and that is that is a commitment to unity unity is one of the core principles throughout the new testament you can begin with jesus and work through the rest of the new testament and see how unity is one of those concepts that is just essential to an understanding of who we are And today, I I hope that you have a a Bible handy. Maybe you can pull one up on your phone or or grab the Bible from the pew right there uh, in front of you, because I I have several passages today that I'd like for us just to look at and consider the, the overall message of unity that you find in the pages of the New Testament. We'll begin today by looking at John chapter 17, if you'd like to go ahead and turn your Bibles there to John 17. We'll read that in just a moment. We'll have these words on the screen as well. You'll note there in John's Gospel, John 17 is is th- this this passage just just hours before his betrayal, his arrest and ultimately his death, Jesus pauses with his closest followers and he prays and he prays for himself, he prays for what he is about to go through. He prays for those disciples who are gathered with him there in that upper room, so he prays for those 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 closest to him, those who are present. But then he also Praise, and what we'll focus on is in verses 20 and 21, Jesus then shifts in his prayer and he prays for not just those who are present, but he prays for all those who would come to faith because of the message that was entrusted to the apostles and then preached around the world, the good news of the gospel. Here it is, John 17 verses 20 and 21. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, them being those disciples who are in his midst. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And then then this, that all of them may be one. It is his desire that all who come to faith because of the gospel would be united together as one. And then Jesus says this, Father, I'm praying for this just as as you are in me and I am in you. He, He parallels in his prayer the unity that he desires for the church, the unity he desires for all believers to parallel the unity that God the Father and God the Son share with one another. And then this, that final line, he says, may they also be in us, and this line jumps off the page, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Would you say that if Jesus is praying about something, that it must be pretty important. <laughs> I mean, if, if Jesus is praying about it at any time, it's important, but especially given the context, these are the final moments he has with these believers before his betrayal and his arrest and ultimately his death. And as he's praying there, he, he's, he's comparing the unity that he and the Father share, and he's, he's saying, Lord, I, I want... I want those who follow after me to be as close as you and I are. Wow. his desire is that our unity would parallel the unity of the Father and the Son. And the stakes are pretty high here also, aren't they? Because he says the ultimate goal of all this is that that the world might believe that you sent me. No wonder Jesus is praying about this, right? No wonder Jesus pauses and prays and lifts up these words to God the Father just before his death, because our unity is a demonstration it, it is a proclamation to the world. Did you think about that when you, when you came to church today, the fact that we would gather together like this and that we would commune with one another and that we would we would break that bread that we would sing these songs that we would bow before the lord we would we would hear his word together and that we would fellowship with one another and all of that those are all ingredients in our our unity but did did you think that when, when you came together like that 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 could be a proclamation to the world that jesus is who he said he was i'll confess i don't normally think of that when we gather but it is absolutely true no wonder jesus here is praying for our unity Christian unity is based on this idea that, again, begins with Jesus, but it's based on this idea that what we share in common is greater than our differences. It's based on this idea that for all of the things that might separate us, for all of the ways that we might kind of differentiate ourselves and pigeonhole ourselves and say, well, you know, I, I kind of do this and, and, and you do that, or I think this and you think that, for for all the ways that we might be able to kind of parse it out and separate ourselves, Christian unity is based on this beautiful, glorious idea that what we share in common is is so much greater than any of those those differences. That's kind of the the idea that Jesus is beginning with. He is praying there with a diverse group of, of, of people who have been following him and they don't always see eye to eye James and John kind of jockeying for for position there within the 12 you have Simon the zealot on one end of the spectrum, and Matthew the tax collector on the other end, those two guys probably didn't get along all the time because of their different political views and their different points of view, but you know, then you have Simon Peter who's so loud, Andrew seems to be a little more quiet, I mean, these men are, are so different, these followers of Jesus, they have so many different experiences and perspectives, and yet Jesus is saying, what you have in common is so much greater than anything that might separate you, And I think through this passage, Jesus is teaching the same thing to us, because what we share in common, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we share a common baptism, we have a common hope, we have a common Savior who loves us with this common love. And so if we share all of that, church, it doesn't matter about some of those other little areas where we might not see eye to eye, or we might disagree about, you know, this or that, or we might have this experience or that perspective. No, no, no. What we share in common is so much greater than anything that might separate us, than any of our differences. And that you see beginning here with Jesus. And now when you look out into the rest of the New Testament, you find these other followers, these other New Testament writers, Paul being one. And so, so Paul will come along, for, for example, and he'll take this teaching from Jesus, this message that Jesus preached and lived out, and he'll expand on that. And one of the places he does this is in the book of Galatians. So if you want to turn there now to Galatians, we'll look now at Galatians chapter 3, and in particular, verses 26 through 28, Paul is, is emphasizing this same kind of unifying concept in uh, Galatians chapter 3. So here is, here is this word. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. What did we just sing? We just sang about being the family of God, right? And, and that, that's not just, you know, flowery, lyrical language we sing. It's rooted in God's word. So he's saying, in Christ Jesus, you have become a family. You've become children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, so again we have this common experience of Jesus that we we have encountered in that water. When we go down into the water and we come back up, we have had this common encounter with Jesus. So we have been baptized into Christ. We have now been clothed. He says with Christ, and here's the outcome of this, the result, the the, the so what of all that. In addition to cleansing us of our sins and saving our souls, you know all of that. Paul has a very, very practical outcome. He says this there is now, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one, he says, in Christ Jesus. So the teaching here is that there are these old categories that are no longer the primary ways in which we understand ourselves or other people. There are these old categories of race and class and gender that are no longer the primary lenses through which we understand ourselves or or the primary lens through which we understand others. Now, those categories are still there, right? I mean, those categories still exist, so we have to do something with that. But his point is that those categories have kind of reached their limit. That those categories that we once used to kind of differentiate ourselves and separate ourselves. Again, this group over here, this group over here. Paul says, no, in Christ we have now received a new identity. And that identity supersedes all these other classifications and divisions and all other ways that we might identify ourselves. Word of God says no. If you have experienced Jesus in this way, you are now one in Christ, he says. We have this new way of relating to one another, the word of God says. That's not based on what separates us. It's not based on, hey, get together with your your little group of people who are exactly like you and get over in this little enclave in this little group and you just kind of stay there and and, don't interact with any of these other folks. No, 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 Paul says that's not the case at all. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Look at how many lines he's crossing. And he's saying the gospel does that because it makes us family. The gospel saves all who come to Christ in faith. Amen, right? Not just one little group, not just this race or that race or this class or that class or this gender or that gender. No, the gospel cuts through all those lines. And we now have this new way of relating to one another based on what we have in common rather than what separates us. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul says this over in Romans chapter 8. Some of us, we talked about this in in class on Wednesday night. He says there in Romans chapter 8 that there is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. So you note that plural pronoun there, us, right? many times especially in uh, in an individualistic culture like the united states we tend to read this passage and and the way we hear it first is is, is we hear it kind of individually uh we'll, we'll read it was like, nothing will be able to separate me from the love of god that is found in christ jesus i'll be honest i when i go to romans 8 a lot of times when i read it that's kind of one of the ways one of the first ways that i i read it okay and that and it's certainly true It's certainly true. If you're in Christ Jesus, you can take that passage and read it and apply it to your own life individually. So, you know, that's not in question. But there is an undeniable corporate element to the teaching there that that Paul isn't just writing so so he can reinforce you and your one-on-one relationship with God, as important as that is. There is this horizontal element where Paul says, hey, look, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus because we are in this together. It's not just about, you know, you and the Lord at the fishing hole. No, it is about you and the Lord and all of God's people being brought together in this rich and beautiful unity of spirit and mind and heart. And when again, when we have encountered jesus to this degree the word of god says nothing can separate us nothing can separate y'all from the love of god that is found in christ jesus the word says so christian unity it, it was important to jesus or he wouldn't have prayed about it it was important to paul or he wouldn't have written so much about it uh, the other new testament writers we can say the same thing about them you, you know uh for, for luke and, and for james and, and all of them do you know who else is greatly interested in Christian unity? And that is Satan. Satan is, it has a particular interest in our unity, or to put a finer point on it, he's greatly interested in doing whatever he can to diminish and destroy and to tear down unity among God's people. Because again. The stakes are so incredibly high. One place where the Word of God talks about this is in 2 Corinthians 11. And that's that, that passage, you may have heard this language before, where Paul uh, is, is talking about Satan and he uses this word. He says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, he, he puts on the mask, okay? He, he, he's, he's hypocritical. He, he pretends, he, he puts on this front, he's a pretender, he, he pretends to be an angel of light, and all the time he's sowing those seeds of discord and dissension and disunity. I learned that word this week, I didn't know that was a word until I looked it up, but disunity, any, anything that contributes to a lack of unity among God's people. And in 2 Corinthians 11, the teaching there, Paul says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that's actually kind of coming from Paul's experience with these false teachers, who in 2 Corinthians 11 have been going around masquerading as false apostles, and they're preaching a false gospel. And and the point I want to make about that is this, that that false gospel has eroded the foundation of of true faith, of real faith. It, It has eroded that bedrock of Christian unity, which is faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And whenever that happens, whenever our trust the gospel has been eroded and seeds of, of, of discord are sown and God's people forget that what we share in common is greater than anything that might separate us what happens is those seeds of discord and dissension and disunity are sown among the body and Paul has to write to kind of correct that much of his ministry is written to correct that but guess what that is counted as a victory in the bowels of hell and that's what Paul is talking about here In 2 Corinthians 11. One other place where where Paul kind of does this and acknowledges this is over in uh, Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians 2, Paul is is writing there and, and and he's describing this experience where Simon Peter came to Antioch and uh much discussion throughout the pages of the new testament about okay so so jesus is the messiah he, he, he's the, the long-awaited promised uh, messiah for the the jewish people so how does that affect gentile believers and so much of paul's ministry is written to, to try and, and kind of reconcile the rift between jewish believers and non-jewish believers and so uh so they thought they'd kind of come to a good place but simon peter comes to antioch and when he's there He has no problem at all sharing table, sharing fellowship with Gentile Christians, with non-Jewish believers. But then Paul talks about this. He says that some men from James, some men from Jerusalem actually come, and when they get there, Simon Peter changes his tune. (laughs) When, When they show up, and they begin to kind of question, well, now wait a minute, you're not eating with those folks, are you? Because you know that, I mean, they may have become Christians, but they're not Jews. They haven't been circumcised. Yeah, I mean, they may have Jesus, but they haven't, like, they don't have Moses, they don't have Torah, they don't have the law on their side, so uh, I don't know. And so Simon Peter kind of withdraws from them, he pushes back and he says, well, no, well, you may be right, maybe we shouldn't be eating with them, and Paul just, it's like he, he has a come apart, he says, well, I thought we were past some of this, because the gospel, again, is about what we share in common, not what separates us. And so in Galatians 2, he writes this in, in verse 13. He says uh, that the other Jews, and what he means by that is Jewish Christians, okay? Uh, the other Jewish Christians joined him, joined Simon Peter in his hypocrisy. So Satan is masquerading as an angel of light. Satan is a hypocrite. And so the reason Paul has such a problem with this is that now Simon Peter has become a hypocrite. He's the one putting on a mask. When the people, when the people from James show up, you know, he doesn't want to eat with the Gentile Christians, but before they got there, he was all about it. And so Paul's like, hey, wait a minute. You're, you were either wrong then or you're wrong now. Pick, but you can't be right on both of those. And he says that this got so bad, their hypocrisy even led Barnabas astray. And Paul says, this is not gospel. And so what Paul is writing to counter He's saying, you know, faith in Jesus is enough, that what we share in common is enough. Again, common faith, common Lord, common baptism, common hope. If we have all that in common, it doesn't matter about some of these other differences, okay? But again, the point is that when that level of division took root, when the focus was on not what we share in common, but the differences, those seeds were sown of discord and dissension and disunity, and that's a victory for Satan. I think we can summarize all of this pretty neatly in two little equations. What we share in common, when that is the emphasis, when we emphasize what we share in common, and when that is greater than our differences, the result is Christian unity. Now, for some of us, it's been a long time since we've had to do math, like in the classroom, okay? So that little Pac-Man sign, right, that, that's greater than, okay? You remember that, yeah. So again, it's pretty simple. When we focus on what we share in common, when that is for, at, at the forefront of our minds, when we're realizing, again, that we share the gospel in common, we share Jesus together, then that is, is greater than our differences. Yeah, we might have differences of opinion or a different view about this or that, but again, we share Jesus in common. When that is our focus, the result, the result is Christian unity. Okay? But you play around with those two elements and, and you get a different, a different result, but in, instead, if you focus on, on the differences that we might have, and when those differences, in our minds at least, become greater then what we share in common, when we focus so much, we fixate on the fact that we don't agree on this or this, or again, I like this, you like that, when that becomes kind of the level of the discourse and that's all we focus on, to the neglect of focusing on what we share in common, then the result, again, is discord and dissension and disunity. And unfortunately, it can be all too easy to focus on our differences. This church uh, has always been a multi-generational church. We have always, anytime we gather together, we will have members of four, possibly five different generations gathered together at any one time, and that is a blessing. There are some churches that that don't have that. Maybe they, they've, they've focused a lot of energy on one particular generation or a couple of generations to the ne- neglect of the others. But anytime we gather, even this morning, we have representatives from about four or five different generations that are gathered here. And that is absolutely a blessing. When those four or five generations start pulling in the same direction, you know, you know a lot of great and wonderful things happen to the glory of God. So count that as a blessing. But let's be honest, there can also be some real challenges when you have, you have so many people from such a diverse Background because each of those four or five generations have different experiences That have shaped their different they have different core values that motivate and drive them They have different family experiences different education levels. It's really fascinating when you take a step back and look at it Uh, Research has been done on this uh, describing these different generations Uh, for example the generation born before 1945 A lot of terms used to describe this generation, but the one that I kind of liked and landed on is the traditionalist generation. For the sake of brevity, we'll just kind of refer to that generation this way. So you can see how this plays out. They're influenced by some pretty major events in their lives. Born before 1945, so that meant World War II was a major influencer for many in this generation. The Korean War, the Great Depression. Both of my parents would have been part of this generation if they were still alive. Uh, my, my grandparents lived through, raised, raised children through the Great Depression, so that formed my parents in a very particular way. My mother never threw anything away. <laughs> when she passed away, my sister and I had to go up into the attic and get rid of all of this stuff that she had saved. I mean, I'm talking tax returns from 1961 that she had kept and saved, you know, like thinking she might need it one day. But that's just what you did. If you grew up in the wake of the Great Depression, that was, that was kind of the way it worked, Okay. And so those those common experiences for people of that generation formed them with some core values. You talk to someone from this generation, the things that matter to them are dedication and sacrifice, uh, loyalty, discipline. For many of the traditionalists, their view of a a career, it was a long term, it was a long walk in the same direction. So you find a lot of them, not all, but you'll find a lot of them who worked at one place, one company for 40 years. And that's just kind of the world that they grew up in. Family to this generation is very very traditional, the traditional nuclear family. For many in this generation, higher education is just kind of a dream. My mother was the first member of, of her family to ever go off to college. That was a big deal back then. My dad, on the other hand, when he got out of high school, he just went to work. Because that's the world that he grew up in. And so we have members of this generation who are present here today who are part of this church family. And that, that's One. You get the baby boomers, born 46 to 64, and what were they influenced by? Well, anything in the 60s <laughs> and before, okay, but a lot of those major influencers shaped the, the boomers. Core values for them, again, this is just kind of common research, but a lot of optimism, success-oriented. Some would say that the 50-hour work week was, was, you know, was invented by the, by the baby boomer generation, For many in that generation, family began to take on new meanings. The traditional family unit began to change during the the time that this generation came of age. So these are are men and women who grew up and their their moms may have stayed at home. But by the time they entered into the workplace, their family unit consisted of a lot of dual-income working families. Which meant that the next generation, Generation X, was that first generation of latchkey Kids, so again, you just see how this all plays out. Generation X, influenced by a lot of scandals, Watergate, energy crisis. Do you remember Y two K? Remember how we all thought the world was going to end January first, two thousand, because we were so reliant on computers. That might happen now. <laughs> we're even more dependent upon it, it seems. Um, this generation was impacted by the the high divorce rates of their parents. This is a generation where they come home after school and nobody's there, so they'd have to let themselves in. Which meant that this generation became very, very independent. Very skeptical of authority figures. Whereas the traditionalists, they would consider themselves loyal to the company and work there for 40 years. Gen X, loyalty to yourself. Sometimes that's all you can count on. Uh, family, this again, is the first generation of, of latchkey kids. It's the first generation of daycare kids. So they kind of grew up taking care of themselves. Education for a Gen Xer is just kind of a means to an end. Yeah, I got that degree so I could get that job so I could make more money so I could take care of my family. And then you get down here to the millennials. A lot has been written about the millennials the last few years, okay? Basically born in the 80s and 90s, okay? Influenced by digital media. Most of us had to kind of figure out how to do this, but for a lot of millennials, they just grew up in a world where digital media was, was ever-present. September 11th, many of them grew up in a world where that was just the reality that had already had. They can't remember the world before that. They're globally aware. They were raised by helicopter parents who wanted to protect them and shield them from the dangers of the world. So they have, they have some core values relative to achievement. They value diversity. They are a highly tolerant generation. They're very ambitious. They want to be the next great generation to get right what everybody else has gotten wrong. And they want to do it now. Uh, Family. They they grew up in merged families. That was kind of the norm. And they were really, really coddled as children. This is the generation that got the, you know, got the trophies for coming in ninth place in the spelling bee. Okay? (laughs) It is. But, but, before you start railing on them... And beating them up, I'm going to get an amen from Matt Flynn on this, before you start railing on them, you got to remember, they weren't the ones giving themselves those trophies, y'all, okay? That's on mama and daddy, all right? But that's just part of the world that they grew up in. I grew up being able to ride my bike down to the corner store to buy baseball cards. Would I let my kids do that today? There's no way in the world that would happen, right? That's just the world they grew up in. You talk to a millennial about about education, you're talking about a huge expense for them. They were promised that if they went off to school and got those jobs and went to, went to college that they would come back and they would be able to enter the workforce and jobs would be waiting for them. And so many of them graduated in 2007 and 2008 and they came out into the world, and looked around and was like, "Where are the jobs?" And now they're paying off those student loans. That's just this generation. And that says nothing about the generation behind them. Those of you born, the youngest people in the room born since the year 2000, we just don't have enough data on you yet to figure out, you know, who you're going to be, what your little quirks might be or whatever. But but that makes up five generations of people in this church. And so what happens when we focus on our differences? You know what happens. We get into this little group of like-minded people. This generation kind of goes off over here and this generation kind of goes off over here and we begin to sort of stay in our own little insular unit. We grow skeptical of the others, right? And I guess you can do that in a neighborhood, you can do that in some other community, but, but you can't do that in the kingdom of God. You can't do that in the body of Christ because we're called to parallel the unity of the Father and the Son. And the world is watching. We're called to model this unity in a way that that leads other people to express faith in Jesus Christ. So what happens when we focus on our differences? Those seeds of discord and dissension and disunity are sown. But Instead, when we focus on what we share in common, that's when we enjoy this bountiful harvest of Christian unity that the Lord has called us to experience in the first place. That's the emphasis of, of much of the writing in the New Testament. One another is two words in English, clearly, but it's just one word in Greek. Alelone is how you say it. It's found a hundred times in the New Testament, and it is one of the most important words in the Bible. It's key for our, our understanding of how we treat one another. Despite our differences, beside, you know, the, the generational differences, that's one thing. We even get into like theological differences or political differences. or I mean, we could do this all day. Talk about the ways in which we sort of view each other and the world based on this or that. But we come back to the testimony of the, of the word of God, and we have to contend with this word, alelone, which focuses on what we have in common. And there are a lot of passages, a lot of those one another passages that come to mind, that, that flesh this out for us. There's a lot of dos and don'ts when it comes to alelone in the New Testament. Here are a couple of the, the do's, a couple of places where, where it tells us how to act and how to treat one another so that we can be faithful to that prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. So, Mark 9, Jesus says, be at peace with one another. Romans 12, Paul writes, he says, live in harmony with one another. But, but you have to, we, we talk about this maybe another time, but the idea of living in harmony isn't just like, hey, let's just agree to disagree Let's just kind of get along. No, the idea here is that we share one mind, that we are like-minded, that we have the mind of Christ that is being formed in us, Philippians 2, and that is the basis of our unity and our harmony together. When we have that in place, then we can accept one another. We can be kind and compassionate and forgiving one another. We can confess our sins to one another, as it says in James, and pray for one another. That's just the hem of the garment of of the do's, all right? The things that that the word of God calls us to do to one another, with one another, the way to treat one another because of this powerful word. There's some don'ts. Jesus says in John 6, don't grumble among one another. Galatians, Paul's all over this in Galatians. He says, don't bite and devour one another. Ah, that word is written to Christians. Don't you hate that he even had to write that? You have any bite marks from a, a brother or a sister in Christ? And he says, Don't do that. Remember, we're called to unity, right? Don't slander. Don't lie. Don't pass judgment. I mean, this just goes on and on and on. But probably the, the greatest of these we find the words of that song that we just sang a moment ago love one another. It's found there in the Word of God so, so often. And I know I'm just. just this is a deluge of scriptures or just kind of I, I just want you to see the enormity the impact of this word our one-anotherness according to the word of God and i say all that to say this again that what we share in common the good news of Jesus Christ the gospel salvation in his name what we share in common is greater than our differences This is a a united church. Mayfair has a long-standing commitment to unity that has been in place throughout her history. In her better moments, even in some of her more challenging times, what we continue to come back to is this commitment to unity. And for nearly 70 years, that's been the case around here. Next year, we have a big anniversary as a church. Did you know that? Next year, 70 years, this church has existed and looking back over that period of time, it's so easy to see that this is one of those bedrock principles, a commitment to unity. It has been that way for a long, long time. And My prayer and what I hope you'll pray about too is that it will continue to be the case, that we can be faithful to this word that we find from the Lord. I'm going to close this, this morning by, by reading these words from Romans chapter 15. And he talks about this God who gives encouragement and giving us endurance, but but that he also is the one who gives us the spirit of unity. I want to ask you to read it with me out loud. But instead of saying the God who gives you a spirit of unity, I'd I'd like for us to read this in the plural. He is the God who gives us a spirit of unity. And it's not among yourselves, but among ourselves. And let's let these words be our commitment being unified together in the spirit of John 17. I'd like to ask you to stand and read these words with me this morning. Let's read. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today the invitation of Jesus Christ is extended. And if you need to be unified back to him, if you need to be reconciled back to him as Chris was sharing as we were gathered around the table a few moments ago, if you have never experienced the transformative power of Christ in baptism, having your sins washed away, and beginning that life of following after him, my prayer is that you would respond to his grace and mercy today, or perhaps there are some other things on your heart that you want to share. Just know that his invitation is open. Let's sing the words of this beautiful song together.